Well, I am so excited today to start a brand new series called The Problem with the Bible. And the reason that we're getting into this kind of study and this kind of series is because I think that if you read the Bible and you read it really seriously and look into it, and if we're honest, we're going to find a lot of problems with the Bible. I mean, the Bible is ancient. It is sometimes complicated. There are parts that are very violent, sexist, racist, and downright outdated. There are a lot of ways in which uh, I have heard over the years or been taught over the years that uh, we might read the Bible or what the Bible is. And if I'm really honest, there's a a lot of those ways that uh, as I've studied deeper and deeper, I've found that I don't think they they really work all that well. For example, some people say that uh, the Bible is a a step-by-step manual on how to live life. And I understand there's parts of the Bible where that that seems to be true and it kind of works, but there's also a lot of of parts of the Bible where that that seems so far-fetched. You read the book of Leviticus and I say, there's no way that this is a step-by-step manual for how I should live my life. There's stuff that is so weird and crazy and outdated and things that we would never do in there. That doesn't seem to me to be like a, a manual for how I'm supposed to live my life. There's times when we read history and I say, this doesn't look like the kind of history that we write. And the questions that I'm asking are not the questions that are answered. The questions that I expect a historian to to write about when they're writing history uh, sometimes are not even addressed and it's totally different. I found that the Bible is really not a good science textbook. And sometimes I've seen people pour a lot of time and energy to try and take what they read here and and what they uh, know about science and and trying to figure it out from the Bible. And I've gone, that doesn't seem like it really works to me either. And uh, I've gone through times where I've looked at that and said, what are we reading here in the Bible? Because some of these ways that, that sometimes we've been taught about how to read the Bible, I think there's just so many problems with, and it brings up so many questions to our mind. This for me, this kind of journey of of talking about what is the Bible and what are we supposed to get out of it really for me began when I was in university. When I was in university, I think for the the first time, I really started to dig into a different level of the Bible and started uh, to ask some of these questions like, why is this stuff in the Bible and what are we supposed to take from it? What is it? And uh, I enrolled uh, after my first year, switched my, my major, and I started focusing on biblical studies and trying to ask those questions and find some good answers. Now, when I was in my undergrad, I had a professor who invited me to a master's level seminar. He had put this together for his master's students, and I wasn't at that level, but he invited me to go. And to be honest, I kind of went because he was supervising my undergraduate thesis, and I wanted some brownie points. So I agreed to go. And he had invited this world-class professor who, at the time, was teaching at Harvard to come in. And this professor, I found out, was not only one of the world's leading academics in the Hebrew Bible, which is the Christian Old Testament, but also he's an Orthodox Jew. Now, this caught my attention because we were in an academic setting in a university that that doesn't put any uh, particular value on uh, your faith or or what you believe as a person, just an academic setting. And so you have people who come from all different walks of life. But this professor, I, I found out, was an Orthodox Jew. And so as he was a leading scholar in the Hebrew Bible, 
He, all, he had an academic interest in it, but he also had a deeply personal and spiritual interest in it because that was his, his sacred text. And so I felt a lot of affinity because I said, I have an academic interest and I'm trying to, I'm trying to work out some of these problems that I'm finding in the scriptures and figuring out what we're reading. And I, I also, now this is my sacred text. This is what I believe is, is uh, the inspired word of God. And I'm trying to figure this out, not just academically, but also what it means for us and how we should live. And, and what is it that God is trying to tell us? And so I went to this seminar and it changed the way that I see the Bible forever as a pivotal moment in how I interpret scriptures. And the thrust of his seminar for a few hours uh, was that he explained to us that we all, as people who live in the 21st century, uh, are people who have certain bias. We have, uh, whether we know it or not or acknowledge it or not, we have um, ways of thinking that are subconscious, that have been taught to us and modeled to us, that we've grown up and that we have assumed. So we are, for example, post-Enlightenment people. All of us, we live after the period of the Enlightenment. Now, you can Google that and figure out a whole bunch of stuff in the Enlightenment, but all that to say is, during that period, there was a huge shift in the way that people thought about the world and about how people learned and about the rules for how we write things and how we read things and how we interpret things. And there was a big shift if you go to pre-enlightenment and post-enlightenment and you just, how do we read things and interpret things and come to different conclusions? How do we think about the world? There's just really differences in our thought process. All of us, whether we know it or not, just because of when we were born and where we were born, we have lived and grown up in that kind of climate, a post-enlightenment rather than a pre-enlightenment climate. And then there have been more thought developments since that time. So more recently, um, the last couple of generations, we've gone through the modern period and the rise of the scientific method and the way that people think through um, thinking through science and, and a whole bunch of different. And there's been ways that we have decided this is how we write and read history. This is how we do science. This is how we do math. And the modern period has continued to formulate our ideas in the background of how we approach those topics. We now live in a postmodern era, which is in some ways taking what we learned in the modern era and running with it, in some ways reacting to it and saying, we think we got this wrong and we're, we're thinking through it a different way. And that's what happens. Every area, we kind of era, we sort of take what we learned in the previous generations and we build on it. And sometimes we go back and we rethink things and we change it. So this professor was saying, all of us, whether we recognize it or not, we're post-enlightenment people. We're, we're modern people. We're postmodern people. But the people who wrote the Bible are pre-enlightenment people. The Bible was written over hundreds of years by all kinds of different authors and put together by people in communities of faith over a huge stretch of time, but all of them from the ancient world, from thousands of years ago. And part of the problem that maybe exists with the Bible, with us reading the Bible, when we come to a lot of these texts, is that we approach it from a post-enlightenment, modern or post-modern mindset, but we're reading something that was written from a pre-enlightenment, pre-modern mindset. And his point to us on that day was, in order for us, we can't stop being who we are. And we shouldn't because we've come up with a lot of good rules about how to read things and write things and, and we, we can't and shouldn't get rid of all of that. But in order to try to understand the Bible more and more, we have to let the Bible be the Bible. And the Bible was written by people who didn't follow our rules and who didn't have our expectations. They had their own set of expectations and their own approach and their own way of doing things. 
And as I started thinking about it, I remember walking out of that seminar going, that just blows my mind because the problem is that I have certain expectations of the Bible that maybe the writers of the Bible never intended to address or approach. I have questions that they're not answering or I have a way of doing it that they're doing a different way of doing it. And when I come to a big problem and say, how could they have put this in here? Why do they write it this way? Uh, Why is this question not answered? Maybe the problem is not so much the Bible itself, but the problem is placing expectations on the Bible that the Bible was not meant to bear. And so we need to let the Bible be the Bible. And that's not easy. That's complicated because, again, we are who we are. And we have all of this, this buildup in the backgrounds of our minds that we, we don't always even acknowledge. It's just there because it's, it's what we were taught. It's who we are. But if we really want to understand the Bible, and, and a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, it's going to take our entire lives and more to try and understand and to get a better picture of the Bible. But I think our task is to try the best we can to let the Bible be the Bible and let it speak to us and move on from there instead of trying to force upon the Bible expectations that we have. And there's a profound difference there. But I'll tell you that uh, as I've uh, tried to do that over the years, sometimes better than others, I'm sure, um, I've never more appreciated the Bible is when I can try it, let it speak for itself. Let those authors that wrote the Bible speak for itself. I believe deeply that the Bible is the inspired word of God, which means that it is the text, the sacred text, that God wants us to have, that God speaks through, and that God illuminates by his Holy Spirit. I believe that it's a text that leads us up to and builds to Jesus. And as we sometimes talk about the Bible being the word of God, that Jesus is capital W, word of God. The word of God is Jesus, who ultimately shows us what God is like. And the Bible is, is the, the scriptures, is the, it's the, uh, the book and the books collected uh, of the community of faith that God uses as a roadmap to lead us to Jesus who shows us who God is. And I believe that we can best do that when we let the Bible be the Bible. So what we're going to do in this, uh, this series, the next five weeks, including today, is start to ask some tough questions. Questions like today, we'll look at, uh, does the Bible contradict itself? What about the violence in the Bible? What are we supposed to do with that? Is the Bible reliable? Can can we really rely on what it says that it's true? Specifically, what about the Gospels? Are the the Gospels true? We have a bunch of these questions. And to say, we take this ancient book and collection of books, and and what does it speak to us today? What does it mean that it is what God wants for us today? So a couple of things about how I want to approach this and how I'm going to encourage you to approach it. As I have studied and tried to figure out some of these answers to the questions, like I said, I have grown in my appreciation for the Bible for my belief that it's inspired by God and it's the book that he wants us to have. But along the way, there are things that I've said, you know, I was taught the Bible's meant to be like this or that. There are some of those things where I've said, I don't think those are good answers or good ways of looking at things. And so I've looked for better ones. If you're someone who has in the last anywhere from 10 to to 50, 60 years, you've really dug into some apologetics on what the Bible is that's defending the faith and defending the Bible. There might be things that we say in this series where you go, oh, that really threatens what I think about the Bible. I want to encourage you, if that's you, and you hear some of those things, not to let that be a threat to you. 
And you don't always have to agree with me or what I say or somebody up here says, but to have an open mind to learn from people who might have a different perspective on you. Because I think just because we might change the way we look at the Bible doesn't mean we have to throw out the Bible. Just because something that we thought uh, was important for the way that we study the Bible, if we decide maybe that doesn't work as well as I thought I did, doesn't mean you have to ditch believing in the Bible. And sometimes that's how these discussions are put out. If you don't believe the Bible in this particular way, then you don't believe in it at all. And I would say resist that way of thinking. Because if we don't have some kind of an open mind to see things from somebody else's perspective, we can never really learn. And we always, always, always need to learn. And so you don't need to be convinced by anything that I say or somebody else says, somebody in your life group says. You don't have to change your opinion on everything if you decide uh, on certain conclusions. Uh, But I I would encourage you to uh, just ask yourself, what can I learn from other people's perspective? Now, if you're coming at this from a perspective uh, where you're skeptical of the Bible altogether, maybe you don't believe any of this and you think, this is silly and I don't believe, I don't know how people can believe any of this is true, whatever that means for them. Um, And there's things in there that just, oh, we can't even go there. It's ridiculous. Uh, I would encourage you also to have an open mind. And maybe some of the things that you're rejecting, again, aren't so much the scriptures, but the way that some people have presented them to you. And maybe there's something here for you to learn too. And so if all of us come with an open mind, and sometimes we might change our opinions, sometimes we might not, uh, but to be able to learn from one another and from what ultimately what I think we, we are faced with in the Bible, uh, to be able to wrestle with that and wrestle with it in community. So I hope uh, that you're part of a life group and that you'll not just listen to these messages on your own, but you'll talk about them with some other people and have some good debates and uh, really get in there. So today what I want to talk about, um, and this is going to, we're going to get more specific over the series, different questions again about well, what about the violence and, and what about the gospels? Are they reliable and some things like that? What I want to start with today is asking the question, are there any contradictions in the Bible? Does the Bible contradict itself? And the answer is yes. No. Sort of. So many people have noted uh, that, for example, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life often have contradictions about chronology and about what happened, um, about when certain things happened in Jesus' life. And, and uh, you know, you read it and say, well, Matthew says this, but Luke says this, and John says something completely different. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. Um, some people... Um, Again, look at the violence in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at this next week. This is really interesting. And they say, man, the Old Testament, God seems very violent. But in the New Testament, Jesus teaches that God is not violent. Isn't that a major contradiction? How do we deal with that? That's one that's been uh, debated throughout Christianity for thousands of years. So today, I I want to come to an example of this in uh, the Old Testament and ask ourselves, what do we do when we encounter an apparent contradiction? And the answer to that question is going to be different uh, depending on what we're reading and where we're reading, what genre is there. There's lots of specifics. So we're going to get into that more. But today I just want to give an example from some Old Testament passages that would seem to be at odds with one another and see if we can find a way to approach it that maybe allows the Bible to be the Bible. So here we go. This uh, is the story of Manasseh, who is one of the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And there's Two different places we read about his stories. One is the, in the book of 2 Kings. One of, the book is, one of them is in the book of 2 Chronicles. What you notice is there's a lot of what was written in the book of Kings is also written about in the book of Chronicles. But there's differences. So I want to point that out. I'm going to read a bit of his story. And this first passage is a little bit lengthy. Uh, but just notice how in the book of Kings, Manasseh is portrayed. What he does 
and uh, kind of what kind of person he is said to be in, in 2 Kings. This is 2 Kings 21. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother name was Hephzibah. So if anybody's expecting a girl and you're wondering about a name, Hephzibah is available, just so you know. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to, bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the Karvasherah pole he made and put it in the temple, of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray. So that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through the servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him, and he has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of my enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have roused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As for the other events of Manasseh's reign and all he did, including sins committed, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Manasseh rested with his ancestors, that means he died, and was buried in his palace garden, the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. That is a list of pretty much the worst things a king could do as king of, of Judah. All the things God told him not to do. You're going to turn away from God. You're going to sacrifice to other gods. You're going to uh, have all these idols. You're leading people astray. There's violence. There's blood everywhere. He sacrificed his son, killed his son. You know, he's going to mediums and spiritists and worshiping the stars. All things that in the Bible you're not supposed to do. And as the king goes, the people go. So Manasseh is the story of the people that he is leading. And they are so far gone that Manasseh and his evil deeds are the reason why the people of Judah are going into exile. That is, they are going to be uh, conquered, right? We read this. They're going to be wiped clean. And in history, we know this happened. They're going to be conquered by the Babylonians, taken away out of their land, spread out into exile, which is symbolic of them, of being outside of God's presence, uh, being outside of God's blessing, being wanderers and nomads where they have no real home, physical, geographical, or spiritual, and being totally lost. 
Jeremiah picks, on it, picks up on it, one of the prophets of the same time period, and he says, I will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, did uh, of Judah and in Jerusalem. In other words, when this was written, book of 2 Kings, Manasseh becomes one of the driving reasons why the people go into exile. Why are we here? Why are we outside of the land? Why has God seemingly left us? Why are we struggling so much? Why are we hurting? Why did we get uh, looted? Why did so many of our family members get killed? Well, look what Manasseh did and where he led us and where we were as a people. Now, another place that we read about Manasseh is in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Remember, Chronicles writes about a lot of the same period of history and a lot of the same people in the kings. But there's some differences. So if you go to 2 Chronicles 33, you'll read a lot about Manasseh that's almost exactly the same as what we just read until you come to verse 10. Then it says this, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought them back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. This is a very, very different story. First story, Manasseh is so bad and he continued to be so evil that it would lead to the exile of the people and Manasseh died and that was it and a new king came in, uh, his son, who also was pretty terrible. But in 2 Chronicles, we go, wait a second. Yeah, he did all these bad things and these you know, army came to, to plunder him and loot him. But then he changed his mind and he repented and he turned to God and he was allowed to come back and it actually fended off the exile that he's been blamed for in the book of Kings. And you stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, what happened? The book of Kings was written, just information, was written um, a couple hundred years before Chronicles. So for 200 years, for centuries, Manasseh is this terrible guy who is one of the primary reasons why all the people are in exile. And then all of a sudden, in the book of Chronicles, we go, wait a second. No, he repented. And yeah, he did these terrible things, but then he brought the people back. And then there were other kings that continued in their evil. And they are the reason why we went into exile. So the story changes. How can it be? Like, how could the writer, whoever wrote Kings, have left out such an important thing? Like, and blame this guy for hundreds of years. Or how could the, the writer of Chronicles, we don't know who that is, so we call them the Chronicler. How could the Chronicler add this in? Did they make this up later? Or did the writer of Kings intentionally not put this in? You would think they would need to say the same thing about Manasseh, because this isn't a small detail. This isn't like, oh, I forgot to tell you, he also repented. And in the end of his life, he wasn't that bad. Or to add it in to say one of the most evil kings in our history who led to one of the most painful, horrible, horrific times in our history. Oh, but he was also a, a repentant guy. Like, where did that come from? And we have no evidence to know where that comes from. In fact, we would ask those questions and say, is there something we were missing? The chronicler, did they get a message from God that we don't know about? They didn't tell us that. They didn't say, I had this vision and God told me that, oh, actually one thing that was missed in the book of Kings is that this King Manasseh actually returned to God and we had this favorable moment in our history. And it leaves us with thinking, maybe this is just a contradiction. It's a different story. And here's what we don't have. We do not have video evidence 
of the moment that Manasseh got down on his knees and prayed to God or that he didn't. No, there was nobody there who could pull out their phone and go, oh yeah, this was a really bad guy, but look at him repent. Ah, Chronicler got it right, but Kings didn't put this in. Why didn't King, the King, Book of Kings put this in? We, as people living in 2021, we want to know what happened. Did this happen or did it not happen? And if it did happen, why did you not mention it? Because it's a big detail. If it didn't happen, why did you add it? You can't just add it. You can't do history like that. Were there other sources in between? And there's some indication that there were some kind of other sources, but none of them have survived into, uh, through history to today. So we have no idea what they might say. There are some sources that we found um, that are actually later projections. So we have a prayer of Manasseh, but we know that it wasn't actually written by Manasseh. It was written hundreds of years later by somebody who would say, maybe this is what he would have prayed when he repented. But we, we don't know that Manasseh, what he actually prayed or what he had said. We just know that hundreds of years later, people were speculating it. Our question is, what happened? And again, as post-enlightenment people, modern, postmodern people, that's one of our rules for history. When you write history, you need to tell us exactly what happened. But for the writers of Scripture, they're much more concerned with why things happened. Yes, what happened? It's there. But we have all these questions that, again, the chronicler doesn't say, oh, kings missed this, or it didn't serve the writer's purpose, so they didn't put it in. Or, you know, I found something out later that they didn't know. Or there's these other books. There, there's no attempt to try and explain why the stories are different. The what is different. But they're both trying to say something about why. Now, let me talk to you about that a little bit. The book of Kings was written in the 6th century uh, before the Common Era. So, uh, six to 700 years before uh, Jesus, or five to 600 years before Jesus is, is on, uh, on the scene. And what's happening there is, it's the period where people are in exile. And that's one of the main themes of the book of Kings. How did we get here? Why are we in exile? And specifically, is it God's fault because God promised to always be with us and take us to the promised land. It's not remove us from the promised land. And we've been depending on that, or we should have been depending on that. Why are we now finding ourselves in exile? And Manasseh's story is an answer, not just to what happened, but why. Why are we here? And the answer seems to be because as the king goes, the people goes, and you've turned away from God because you've become very violent because you've worshipped all kinds of gods that have taken you in all kinds of destructive areas. Because you're living in, in a way that has consequences. And the book of Kings ends slightly on a, on a hopeful note, but, but the people are still in exile. And the slightly hopeful note is that the king of Judah is sort of gaining a little bit favor with the, the king that's ruling over them. But right before that, we find out that they've been taken off to Babylonian and then they've all tried to run to Egypt because they're so scared of the people that have taken over them. And they're trying to come to terms with why are we in exile and what are we supposed to do? Is this God's fault? And one of the answers that comes back is says, actually, you need to deal with, with your decisions and the consequences of them what oftentimes the Bible refers to as sin, that your sin leads you to a certain place. Look at Manasseh, look at his sins, which are all of our sins. This is who we are. Why are we in exile? Because we've chosen to turn our backs on God and now he's called us to live. We've become violent. We've treated people horribly. We've turned to, to gods that, that have taken us in directions that are so destructive. 
the book of Kings ends with people in exile trying to figure out why they're in exile. And one of the answers is we've had very few kings that really pointed us in the good direction. As the king goes, the people go. He's a representative, right? So not just the king, but we have often gone the wrong, wrong direction. That's why we're in exile. It's not God's fault. It's not that God's been unfaithful to us. It's that we've been unfaithful to him now. A couple of hundred years later, the chronicler is writing, and he recounts many of the same stories, but he often, not just with Manasseh, but he often adds more hopeful elements to different kings' lives, more positive elements. And chronicles, again, a lot of the same history, but comes from a different perspective. Because 200 years later, the people are coming back out of exile, back to Jerusalem, they're rebuilding, and trying to ask and answer a whole bunch of different set of questions. Like, how do we match up our history with our ancestors who came into the land, then the ancestors who were kicked back out of the land, and now us who are coming back into the land again? Who are we as a people, and why are we coming back to the land where we were before? And so Chronicles takes a lot of the negative imagery and doesn't wash over it and ignore it, but then brings in another layer to start to add in some of these positive things like we see with Manasseh. Manasseh did terrible, horrible things and had consequences, but then he turned back to the Lord. And you go, why would someone in Kings not mention that? And in Chronicles, they would mention that. Aren't they different versions of the story? Well, they're trying to answer different questions from a different perspective. Why are we in exile right now? This is the consequences of, of our sin and of our, of our actions, of our decisions. Why are we now being able to come back and rebuild? Because we don't ignore all of the terrible things that we've done and our consequences, but God sees us and, and redeems us. And when we turn to him, he gives us another shot. And even one of our worst kings, Manasseh, could turn back to God. And so could we. And we could find redemption in that. And now they're making sense, not of what's happening in the sixth century before the common area, era, but now in the fourth century common era. We're back in the land and we're rebuilding and we're doing something different. And so we're asking different questions and we're coming to different answers. Now, scholars, and part of this is going to depend on what you you think of the Bible and your version of inspiration and how God is speaking to and through the biblical writers. But scholars on all different spectrums look at that and say, so what happened? Did the author of Kings intentionally not mention it? this whole positive part of Manasseh because it didn't fit his story? Did the author of Chronicles make that up because it did fit his part of the story? Were there some sources in between that would help us clear that out? Well, we haven't found them. And it seems like they're mentioned, but we don't know what they say because they haven't survived. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of debate. And again, we might come to different conclusions about some of the what actually happened and what are we reading here? And we might say there's a contradiction in how they're portraying this person and how they're portraying the people. But maybe when we ask the question, well, which one is true? We would say both. If we're going to let the Bible be the Bible, here's a few things that I think we might not be comfortable with because we are people in the year 2021. But are part of the Bible, and again, are the people who wrote the Bible, they're not stupid people. So when they put Kings and Chronicles together and said, oh, these seem like there's some contradictions here. It wasn't like, oh, we put the Bible together and then people read it and go, do you, do you realize that these don't 100% line up? Like it seems like there's a contradiction here. And then the people who put it together go, oh, we didn't even notice. We didn't read it that closely. Ancient people are ancient. They're not stupid. It's very important. So when they put these things side by side, and this happens oftentimes in the Bible, you get two stories that seem to say two different things. I think we should assume it's on purpose. 
and you're supposed to notice that they're different. Same thing happens in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, by the way. You get very uh, different views of God in creation, and even his name is different. We can get in that another day, but um, you're supposed to go, wow, there's something different. Well, which one's true? Maybe both of them. Maybe they're meant to be put there to invite us into attention. Not an easy answer that just explains everything. Well, God says and gives us one line that just clears everything up. Maybe that's not the way that God wants to communicate to us. He says, I want you to consider both of these things and wrestle with it. An invitation to wrestle and to go deeper. Because I think that's how we learn, not just kind of a superficial level. That's how we learn deeply. Go and talk to some people again. Go read these texts. Go compare them. Put them together. Talk about what one means and the other means and how they're the same and how they're different and why they're different. And don't assume that because they are different that 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 means it's silly or it's not true. It doesn't make any sense. This is ancient people writing ancient literature on purpose, putting these things together for us to think through. So here's what we'll find in scriptures. Contradictions are only a problem if we can't accept the following that I think we need to start accepting because if you're honest and let the Bible be the Bible, you find these things. Number one, diversity. There are different voices in the Bible. There's different perspectives, different genres, different ways of communicating. I don't think the Bible works this way that says God just wrote something. Well, God writes through people and at different times over hundreds of years and different writers who were dealing with different circumstances, who were trying to take what God was telling them and communicate them well. And that's a good thing that there's diversity. It's hard to ignore if you read through the, high, the whole Bible. You don't just get one line. In fact, if you go and, and look at uh, Christian books on any topic, just about any topic, and you say, what, is, what does the Bible say about blank? You can find all kinds of, what does the Bible say about this topic? Well, you can find entire series that are written that says, well, here's five different people in five different versions. Why? Because there's diversity. But maybe that's okay. Maybe we can learn from uh, different perspectives and different voices. Maybe it's essential for us to learn from different voices and perspectives. So number two, there's disagreement those voices are sometimes wrestling and pushing and pulling against each other. You say, well, that makes it complicated. Just tell me what to believe. Again, I think a deeper learning says, I'm not just going to tell you the easy way to believe. Come into the disagreement. Find the tensions. Sit in the tensions. Work through the tensions. You might not even always be able to relieve all the tensions in what you learn. But live there for a while. And maybe you learn something on a deeper level. Because these people were on a real journey of faith. On the podcast this week, on Wednesday, we're putting out a podcast. Hopefully, you found our West Side of Home podcast. We're going to talk about uh, just one of those, those tensions and disagreement that are put together. One's the book of Jonah, which we studied this week, and one's the book of Nahum. They both deal with their enemies, the Assyrians. Read about them a little bit today in Manasseh's story as well. And one of them says, uh, don't you think God should punish these people? And the other says, uh, don't you think that God is forgiving all these people? And you go, that's a, that's a big difference. Maybe we need to read those together, though. Listen more on Wednesday. Number three, uh, there's contradictions. The only problem if we can't accept developments, that the Bible's not static, that we don't just see God saying one thing and then it stays the same forever and forever and forever. But there is development. Part of that development is the story of the people of Israel we find in the Old Testament is leading us to the need for the Messiah, Jesus, and Jesus will show us things that we didn't get in the Old Testament. And I always come back to the antitheses that are in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus takes things, not all of them are quotes from the Bible, but many of them are, and he says, you have heard it said, quote something from the Bible, he says, but I tell you, and he takes something deeper. 
deeper into the intention of God. And you might say, but the Bible says, and he says, I know, but we can't leave it there. We have to go further. And that's important for us to think through. We can't just pick out verses from the Bible and say, ah, this, this, this is it. I'm going to read this in isolation. And this is what I believe. You say, yeah, that's in the Bible. That's important. But we need to also read things in the development of the story that leads us to Jesus, who shows us uh, God's intentions most clearly. So in the Bible, if we let the Bible be the Bible, I believe we're going to find these things. We're going to find diversity and disagreement and development. I hope, even if that feels threatening to you, that you'll wade into that and say, that's not simple all the time. It's going to be a little bit messy, but it's also beautiful and wonderful. And maybe it is the way that God needs to communicate with us to drive his truth into our hearts. And we have so much to learn if we're willing to take some of the tensions whether you call that a contradiction or not, some people, depends on your definition, would say, well, those are contradictions. And other people would say, um, it's not a contradiction. It's just a different perspective. However, you know, let's not argue about the terms except to say, when we see these things that seem to pull our, our, us in different directions to say, maybe we just need to live with that tension and wade into it and talk about it and debate it and learn from it. So we might ask in the end, was Manasseh a bad guy or a good guy? It's like uh, my son, who's four, right? When he goes into stories, Manasseh, good guy or bad, he doesn't read the story of Manasseh, but superhero stories or something. And he can pretty quickly go, here's the good guy and here's the bad guy. And I think a lot of us live that way. That's an easy way for us to live. We just want to compartmentalize. These are the kind of people that are good and those are the kind of people of bad. Makes us sort of judgmental, but it can be simple for us, right? Let's just divide out who's good and bad because that makes us feel safe. We always put ourselves usually on the good side, uh, even if we do bad things, but I'm good at heart. Uh, there's are bad people and we know that we're good and we're Christians or we're Canadians or we're caring people, whatever your category is. And the people who uh, aren't like us are the bad people. The people we fight against are the bad people. But you know, as much as it's simple for sort of immature stories for little kids where they say, here's the good people and bad people. The stories that we read as we mature or we watch movies about or whatever, the ones that really hit home for us and are authentic, we find out are the ones where the good guys, the good guys aren't always good. They're flawed. And the bad guys aren't always all bad. They're, they're sort of sometimes redemptive or there's these redeeming qualities or at least there was at one point and we see the circumstances and those are the stories that really grip us because that's real. And maybe when we look at the story of Manasseh and we see, was he just a terrible guy that continued until he died and that's why people went into exile? Or was he a guy that was, that, that was terrible in some ways but also was, was redeemed and he found his way back? And maybe that's the point is people aren't just good people or bad people. People are flawed people who are in need of redemption but are not too far beyond redemption. When we look at ourselves, maybe the tension we have to say is, why, how did I get here? Why am I in the place that I'm at? Maybe it's the consequences of my actions, consequences of my sin. But maybe I'm not too far gone from redemption. And doesn't that tension, as we wade into it, and maybe not as we resolve the tension, but as we wade into it and try and learn from it, and we learn from both of these stories, it draws us into something deeper. Doesn't that point us to Jesus? 
points to the cross that shows us the worst that humanity can do, that sin can do to crucify an innocent man who came to teach and model love and authenticity in a way to God. And we put him on a cross and we crucify him. And yet God's overwhelming desire to redeem people and to say, in your worst moment, you're, you're never so far gone. Well, am I just a good person or a bad person? Yes. And never far from God's redeeming touch. So perhaps our task is not to remove all the difficulties from the Bible, but to allow the Bible to be the Bible and ultimately allow the Bible to point us to the word of God, Jesus Christ. And so Heavenly Father, help us to learn, help us to be open-minded, help us to search your scriptures for what you would teach us on a deep level. Help us not to be afraid of the things that are difficult or complicated for us, but to weigh into them and there to find you teaching us, leading us, loving us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.